I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I talk with author Katie Watson about her book, Scarlet A, The Ethics, Law, and Politics of Ordinary Abortion. Katie Watson, thank you so much for joining me. Hi. So you opened your book describing a trip you'd made to the Vatican, and you came across this apparatus called a foundling wheel. What exactly is that? So a foundling wheel, I later learned, I mean, I stumbled across this thing and I was like, what is this? And so it prompted me to learn a little more about it, is uh, picture a window cut into a stone wall and now take a barrel that's been cut in half the long way. So you've got half a barrel, stick a pole on it so that when you spin it, it can be open or closed. Um, A foundling wheel is something that people could put an infant on, turn that barrel or whatever the other structures were made of, so that the infant suddenly is facing the interior of the hospital. The parent is on the exterior, and now the parent can sprint down the street without anyone seeing them. it's, It's apart from the entrance. So it was this new option of having a child adopted by strangers versus within a family or a community passing a child on to be raised by others. Right. You know, what struck me about that anecdote was that, you know, it it reminded me that the need to end an unintended or unwanted pregnancy or, you know, in the case of the foundling wheel, to extricate oneself from parenthood when you don't Mm -hmm. want to be a parent. It's as old as life itself. Right. Totally. As well as the stigma behind it. Right. You know, running down the street, that picture that you painted. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And I think it's super important because people, I've heard this from really smart pro-choice feminists in the legal profession, some others were like, well, maybe Roe was wrongly decided because we needed to let the states work it out. It was just too new of an issue. And it was uh, sort of like, it's not yeah. that new. And the idea that unwanted pregnancy is as old as pregnancy itself, right? The idea that this isn't uh, what I wanted and ideally, you know, and so, so yes, and, and that the, the Pope at the time was inspired allegedly or by legend uh, to do this because of dreams he was having. You can't verify that. But the thing you can verify, it appears, is people were, some people were putting their unwanted infants in the, the river to drown oh, them. Yeah. So the infanticide rates and the child, I have a very long end note about this, the child abandonment rates were just stunning. Whether leaving a child to die of exposure, an infant, or just leaving them on the side of the road where people knew that people abandoned infants. So if you wanted a slave, you would just pick up an infant. Like, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's a really long end note, Jen, that tries to summarize an entire historical text. Editors hate me. Um, You know, you're not (laughs) supposed to have those kind of end notes. But I was like, I can't put this all in the text, but this is just unbelievable. It's this very little documented part of history. And I can't make a one-for-one correlation, but the rates appear to be in the Renaissance, like, you know, a third, a quarter. I mean, it's like, isn't that weird that that's kind of like our abortion rate? Exactly. um, So, so... Uh, those fates were not good. Some people would say, well, if they're alive, it's still a net good. So we could have that conversation. But my larger point is there that Roe is not about anything new. It's about one of a very, very old question of when a woman has an unwanted pregnancy, what can she do 
And then secondly, what ought she do? Right. So the timing is really apt for your book because this is the 45th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Um, it was uh, 1973, which, you know, the point that you just made about someone saying, you know, this is kind of an, a new idea. And I think when people think about abortion and the need to end an unwanted pregnancy, their minds go back to, you know, 1973 or, you know, a few decades before when we had these kind of historical accounts of women dying during, you know, abortions, illegal abortions, but they don't go back as far as this foundling wheel, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the way that you described the Roe v. Wade decision, we have a tendency to think about it in really simple terms in that we think about it granting a right to women, right? But it was more complex than that, right? It was a, it was a question about, you know, ethics versus law. Is that mm-hmm. is that right? Or can you describe well, the basic premise? Yeah, I mean, the basic premise of Roe is... Can the government decide whether or not you must continue a pregnancy? And the answer was no, because the word person, as used as 16 times in the Constitution, did not encompass embryos and fetuses by the intent of the framers. So people associate Justice Scalia with original intent, right? There's this funny way in which Roe was an original intent decision. It rarely gets thought of that way. So people rarely describe Roe in those terms as like an original intent decision. But one premise of Roe was there's no way the framers were thinking of embryos and fetuses when they were writing the word person. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. And there's no historical record that would ever suggest that or support that. So if it's not a person protected by the Constitution, the government doesn't get to say what you get to do with it, right? That it's a matter of conscience, what its moral status is. And so the court was not saying fetuses have no moral value or that they have lots of moral value or embryos have none or all. It said that this is a matter of conscience that's left to citizens and their physicians to decide up until viability, which in an otherwise healthy pregnancy, it would we would peg these days around twenty four, you know, at twenty four weeks or a little later. After viability, the government can weigh in and have a state interest in life, though there's no fetal rights. It's the state if they choose to. They don't have to, but they may ban abortion, except when the life or health of the pregnant woman is threatened. And that is defined very broadly in terms of mental health and age and all these other things. So the idea of Roe being that that it is a matter of conscience, it, that's not the phrasing Roe uses. It uses a privacy framework. But I think it's helpful to think of it in a way analogous to other First Amendment rights like freedom of religion or freedom of speech. If you define an embryo as having a low moral status or an intermediate moral status that still allows you that your moral status or your imperatives to trump, then you get to move forward with that even though your neighbor disagrees. And vice versa, that we can't force, the government can't force abortions under a governmental view that an embryo is meaningless. And therefore, because your embryo or fetus has a genetic anomaly, you must terminate it or fill in the blank. You only get to have so many kids. The government doesn't get to do that either. I think that what you're saying is that Roe v. Wade is actually an absence of a decision around morality, right? It's just saying that, you know, this is open to the individual. Yeah, most of constitutional law that's not what the Supreme Court justices are charged with to be. They're not our priests or imams or rabbis or other moral leaders. They're 
judges. They're meant to apply the constitution and the law. Now, there's overlap between ethics and morality routinely. Other, you know, just because thou shalt not steal is one of the Ten Commandments doesn't make laws against robbery a violation of church and state, right? The separation of church and state, a violation of the establishment cause. So there's overlaps between religious ethics and secular ethics and law. But the point is, when the justices found that same-sex marriage was protected by the same fundamental right to marry that protected opposite-sex couples, they weren't saying same-sex marriage is morally fabulous or morally bad. They were just saying it's constitutionally protected. Right. We get a little confused sometimes that if it's something is protected by the Constitution, that that must be saying it's moral or ethical thing. And there are times we don't want those to line up. And I think the freedom of speech gives a great example. Just because you're free to say anything you want doesn't mean everything you say is awesome. Right. That's a great, that's a great analogy. So you use the term ordinary abortion quite often here, Mm -hmm. and you contrast it with extraordinary cases. Why is that distinction important? Well, I, as I hope I say clearly in the book, the extraordinary cases are real and they're important. And given the prevalence of abortion, about a million a year, even if you say this type of case represents 1% of abortion cases or this type represents another 2%, that's still a lot of cases, right? And and if it's your situation, it's 100% of the cases that are relevant to you, right? right? That distinction is not meant to dismiss what I'm calling extraordinary abortion. It's just meant to point out the statistical reality that the cases we discuss the most publicly are the cases that occur the least statistically. And that's true on both sides. For those who oppose abortion, really focusing on abortions that happen later in pregnancy, when 80% of all abortions happen before eight weeks after conception or 10 weeks after a person's period on average, And on the pro side, the cases of rape or incredibly young people or just tragic fetal anomaly, incompatible with life, those cases absolutely happen and they're so compelling and moving. They're also in the minority. And so I just felt like as an ethicist, the vast majority of what patients and physicians are doing wasn't reflected in the public conversation. And that just struck me as odd. And so for me, ordinary is the term that I use to think about the other, you know, and I'm, this is a very rough number, but 95% of abortion cases. And I think it's just fascinating that we don't talk about those. And in the book, I talk about the reasons I don't think, that I think we don't talk about them, but I'm interested in the ordinary. I think there's a lot to learn from it. And I think it's useful to bring that out. I call it ordinary just because it's the situation of a large number of Americans every year. So the, you know, maybe roughly 95% of that roughly million abortions a year. I call it ordinary because in the medical sense, abortion is really routine. It's an incredibly simple, safe procedure. And, you know, in the early stages of pregnancy, you can do it with the abortion pill. You can do it with a, a quick vacuum procedure that takes five minutes and an ibuprofen, you know. So from a medical perspective, it's incredibly safe. It's very simple and routine. So that's another way in which it's ordinary. In terms of the goals of medicine, it brings a person's body back to baseline. Oh, yeah. They come in and say, I don't like this change in my body. And that's usually what medicine is about. So those are some of the reasons. And and just that the, it underscores the fact that abortion is really common. Yeah. 
You know, so ordinary abortion to me is not meant to minimize its significance to people, but it's also just to underscore that abortion rates are at their lowest since Roe versus Wade was decided. So the lowest in 45 years. And still at these newly low rates, if they hold, that means that all American women 15 to 44, one in four of them will have one or more abortions before menopause. Yeah. I think that's a lot. Yeah, you, you cite, yeah, the numbers that you cite in the book are, were surprising to me. Something like uh-huh. uh, 20% or roughly a little under 20% of all pregnancies end in abortion. Yeah. Right? And then but one that was really surprising to me is that 45% of pregnancies are unintended. Right. So there's still a, a good percentage of people who aren't opting for abortion, but that number of pregnancies that end in abortion is high, higher than yeah, one, one in expect. five yeah. Yeah, of American exactly. women who are pregnant have an abortion this every year. Like that's like, and and that's part of what motivated the book. It's not like I've been walking around saying these numbers all my life. I researched them to teach the first class uh, I was assigned to teach on reproductive ethics in a medical school setting. And I was like, no way, you know, and I knew I'd been teaching the law of abortion for a long time. And so it's just funny to me. I knew the law really well, but I didn't know the epidemiology and, and that's, that gap in my own knowledge sort of pointed out to me this larger issue that we talk more about the idea of abortion than the experience of abortion. That's true in law and that's true in philosophy. But because I'm at a medical school, I'm sort of grounded more in the world of doctors and patients now than I was in the past. And it's helped me feel like all of those are important. And I felt like the experiential piece, and that's partly it's women's stories, but another is just the numbers. And so the number that just just shocked me or struck me was this idea that over 40%, I think it's about 42% of all unintended pregnancies end in abortion. So like, it's interesting to say one in five pregnancies end in abortion, but a lot of those people wanted those pregnancies. It's not a shocker. They kept them. They've been trying to get pregnant. They wanted a baby. It's when you look at the unintended pregnancies and not every unintended pregnancy is unwelcome. You know, a lot, many people are the whoops baby, uh, the the third (laughs) unexpected child of their parents that showed up five years later and everyone's thrilled, you know, and it just was not what we planned, but here we all go. Isn't this a fun roller coaster of life? But just using the term unintended, not trying to drill down to unwanted, it's 42%. Right. If you, I don't know the number. If you drill down to how many more of those pregnancies are defined as unwanted, and it's kind of hard to do because like, well, you didn't plan to get pregnant. Did you want that third baby? I mean, you didn't because it wasn't what you actively tried to do, but how hard was that decision to go for? You know what I mean? Like, it's, right, right. It's, I don't know how you break that out um, as a researcher without some really detailed interviewing. But for me, that 42% number was like, Oh, so when faced with an unwanted pregnancy, two out of five people had an abortion. Right. That doesn't seem like, so that's a super common that's, yeah. choice. That's pretty high. Yeah, yeah that's really high. And, and oh, it doesn't mean that's a good or a bad thing. You know, we still have a lot of conversation to follow, but we have to start from the premise that it's a not uncommon thing, which I think that the dialogue frames abortion as this like really fringy activity (laughs) and even in the pro side sometimes it's like just fight for it just in case someone but not you would need it 
Um, you know, it's almost, right. it's weird. Like, I don't know, there's something that's just unreal. Right. I just felt like the public conversation, even among friends, was not matching the patient experience or physician experience that I was learning more about. And I think that the conversation is just, when I talk about ordinary abortion, so disrespectful to all the women and couples who choose to have abortion. It's disrespectful of their intellect and it's different disrespectful of their integrity. You know, they're 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 painted as like just these thoughtless libertines, sex crazed people who don't know what they're doing, you know, in so yeah. many circles, as if they're not the same serious moral agents who deliberate and make a decision that people facing an unintended pregnancy who say, gosh, I feel like I need to go forward with this pregnancy or, you know, it's so obvious to me I want to be a mom. Yeah. We think of them as moral agents, but in medical ethics, we think of all patients as moral agents and all physicians as moral agents. And so the push to paint these people as not moral agents, first of all, the numbers are like, wow, that many Americans are just, you know, completely stupid and (laughs) (laughs) cruel. Yeah. But I guarantee you, give any one of those women a gun and tell them to put it to Jen's head and say, you can't go to college unless you shoot Jen in the head. Ah, I promise (laughs) that you're not going to get shot, Jen. I promise you're not. They're going to skip college. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, like it's, they don't think that embryo is a person or they wouldn't do it. Yeah. So, so it just is, it's one thing to say, I disagree with their moral assessment. Of course, that's great. Cool. Let's have that conversation. But I think there's just been this large dismissal that those who support the right to abortion are, it's only a legal argument or a public policy argument, and those who oppose have an ethical argument. Yeah. So I want to go, I want to talk to that a little bit mm-hmm. later, um, because there are some yeah. people who have some very conservative views who go through, they have the same pragmatic needs as, you know, people who are pro-choice. But I want to talk about, firstly, the, uh-huh. the, base, the baseline state that you mentioned, because that was really eye-opening to me. I'd never thought about that. Can you explain what a woman's body having a baseline state means? Well, what I mean is our normal functioning for a man or a woman at, at any given age. What's your normal functioning? So, you know, when you're 85, we don't expect you to win the 100 meter dash, you know, that is just whatever yeah. is your normal functioning. Of course, pregnancy is not a disease state in any way, shape or form. It's not an injury. But all of medicine is when when you ask a doctor to change something in your body is because a a bodily change has happened. So people paint and they say, well, pregnancy is not a disease. It's a natural state of affairs. Well, you know, cancer's totally natural too. You know, right. your cells mutated. We, we review it as uniformly negative because it's going to shorten your life. Pregnancy is really hard on your body too. You know, there's a lot of health risks associated with pregnancy and the risk of dying in childbirth is 14 times the risk of dying in abortion. So if when you do a risk benefit analysis as a patient, you're deciding is the benefit of whatever I'm going to do as a medical intervention outweigh its risks. And that's true in life, right? Every decision we make are kind of weighing risks and benefits. And so if you want to have a baby, those risks are worth it. If you don't want to have a baby, it's all risk and no benefit right? Yeah. And when I say baseline, what I mean is if the average American woman lives into her 70s and the average American woman has something like 1.8 children, let's call it two, her baseline state of her body is to not be pregnant. Those two nine-month periods are the exception to the rule that she walks around in the world not pregnant. And so for me, it was just another way to think about abortion 
it is someone saying, I wasn't pregnant for the last decade or year or whatever her situation is, and I don't want to be pregnant this year. Yeah. So make me unpregnant. You know, reverse this bodily change that has happened that I didn't want. And that is consistent with the goals of medicine. Right. And, it, you know, for anyone who's been pregnant, you definitely know that it's an exceptional state for your body yeah. to be in. It's an extremely exceptional state. Extremely exceptional. And just so just because it's normal and natural doesn't mean it's not exceptional. You know, so it's that interesting right. thing. I think sometimes we forget because pregnancy is so common and its outcome is so often so incredibly joyful. We forget like it's it's a thing. It's really hard work. <laughs> Yes, tell me about it. And, and that's in the normal pregnancy. I mean, other pregnancies really threaten people's uh, health and lives. But even in a just normal pregnancy, that's hard. So, but I want to talk about the the cases that you mentioned of conservative people who find themselves in circumstances where they want to end a pregnancy, right? And you talk about this doctor, and there's a doctor in the in the book that mm-hmm. has you know conservative patients come in often. And, you know, and, and sometimes people who are very publicly and very vocal about their opposition to abortion. But, mm-hmm. you know, they find themselves in circumstances where they want an abortion. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that the point that you're making is that people who are morally opposed to abortion are often struck with the same pragmatic circumstances that lead them to termination. Well, it's I, to me, what's so interesting is the idea that we think something is right or wrong doesn't necessarily predict our behavior. And so there's abortion opinion and abortion behavior. And so someone who is completely, like I know one woman who is utterly pro-choice, always has been, thinks abortion should be legal and does not think it is unethical or immoral. So she's in both sides on the pro side. She had an unintended pregnancy when she was 19. And she just decided that she didn't think abortion was right for her. She, her sister had had an abortion. She didn't think it was great for her sister. She has sort of a life philosophy that you should experience everything that you can. And she decided to continue the pregnancy and have the infant adopted by strangers. And I just thought it was so interesting because all her life, people have assumed she was very religious and she was anti-choice because she is a birth mother. And she's offended by that because her thing is like, I'm just saying everyone should have the right. And I actually also think it's perfectly moral. It just wasn't right for me. Right. It's even hard for us to think about that with pro-choice people. If someone's pro-choice, they have an unintended pregnancy. It might be easy to be like, well, just have an abortion. Well, that's not everyone's thought process or how they want to go for themselves in that moment. On the other side, there are people who the idea, I'm very against abortion in the general abstract sense, but when they find themselves with an unintended pregnancy that they really don't want to keep, well, that's harder, isn't it, right? Then you're going to have to walk the walk. And so it's been amazing to me how many providers have told me, and this is documented in literature, you know, patients and to the level of abusiveness who will come in and be like, well, you're a murderer and I hate you. And I'm here because I have to be, but I hate you and abortion is murder. Go ahead and do your terrible, dirty thing. And it's sort of like, no, we're going to talk a lot longer than that, you know, because (laughs) I don't think what I'm, a provider might say, I don't think what I'm doing is murder. If you think you're murdering someone, that's not the business I am. So you shouldn't have an abortion. Right. You know, like we're going to have to have a very long conversation here. But so as I say in the book, I've heard from multiple providers sort of their inside joke that the conservative exceptions to abortion bans are rape, incest and me. Right. Because of the number of patients who come and start by saying, so let me just start by saying I'm totally against abortion. 
And, you know, it's just so hard to be like, okay, well, here's the door. But of course, people, doctors are more compassionate than I am and say, okay, well, tell me, so it must be hard for you to be here. What brings you here? Right. And, you know, their stories are the same as everybody else's. Right. Exactly. Because they're human. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so I'm not saying that in a critical, like, I'm not saying like, oh, see, they're hypocritical. Right. It's just like life is hard and complicated. And that's why I'm interested in behavior and exp- I'm interested in opinions. But number one, constitutional rights are not determined by opinion polls, right? Like, yeah, I care more whether the promise of equal protection requires desegregation of schools than what the opinion polling on desegregation of schools is around the time of Brown versus Board of Education, right? Like, opinion polling will be relevant, but that doesn't going to answer your constitutional analysis. So number one, even if 90% of people in America were against abortion, it's still a constitutional right for the 10% who want to do it. Okay. Number two, people's opinions, what they say and what they do are not always in sync with all of us in all of our life on multiple topics. And so I think I was just interested in following action more than words in this book. Right. I'm just curious about the intellectual, you know, gymnastics that has to happen for a person to be that strongly against something and then to absolve themselves if they truly believe that it's murder, to absolve themselves and then just blame the doctor. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's that's a sticky interaction. I don't talk about this as much in the book, but I think the strain of I regret my abortion stuff is a way to come back in. I see. If you regret it enough and publicly enough, that is sort of a performative mea culpa that lets you back into the pro-life fold. Yeah. Um, That's a complex topic because I don't want to suggest people don't feel what, of course, people feel what they feel, but I think our emotions are also there's psychologists of emotion who would, you know, be able to speak to this more eloquently. But our emotions, I believe, are both internally generated and socially driven in some mix. So your culture tells you what to feel in certain circumstances. And other times you feel things that go against the culture. And then sometimes it's a mix. The culture tells you that because that's what most people feel. You know, so that's a complicated topic. And so I don't doubt that some people regret their abortions and wish they could get in a time machine and do it otherwise. But I'm just curious about how that works. So to your question of, you know, how do you do those mental gymnastics? Some of it is you work your way back and you got to do the action, but because you regret it a lot. um, Yeah. You know, one of the other things that I got from your book that I hadn't thought about before was that, you know, so no one's flip about abortion. Well, very few people are flip. I would imagine. uh I I don't know what people are thinking, but I would imagine that's a difficult decision. But not, not only do women have to grapple with their internal guilt, right, uh-huh. and, you know, the morality around that decision for themselves, but they have to grapple with the emotional projections from other people about how they should feel about their abortions, right? Uh-huh. You should feel guilty or you shouldn't feel guilty. Or on yeah. the flip side, whether they should be bold or not with that, you know, shout your abortion campaign, uh-huh. right? Do you know, maybe someone doesn't want to feel bold about it, you know? Uh-huh. So they have to grapple internally and then those external projections, right? Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me what an abortion beneficiary is? So I have used the term abortion beneficiary to mean someone who didn't have an abortion themselves, but benefited from the fact that another person in their life had an abortion 
And at its most expansive use, benefits just from the legality of abortion generally. So abortion is often framed as a women's issue, which legally is absolutely correct. It's an individual right of women. So it's important not to lose that. But it's not exclusively a women's issue, right? So it takes typically two people to get pregnant. Again, I'm speaking to the vast majority of cases. And one of them is typically a male. And the numbers suggest that an incredibly high percentage of women having abortions have at minimum told the man who they created the pregnancy with. And a large number of those men are supportive or agree with that decision or participated in that decision. A high percentage of women are in long-term relationships with that individual. So I think of those men who are on the same page with, who agree with their partner's abortion decision, or if they knew about it, would be glad that that's what she did. I think of them as obvious abortion beneficiaries. They got to finish college too. You know, they had got to not have to support a child that they weren't ready to support too. They got to not be entangled in a lifetime relationship with a person who was meant to be a short-term relationship. Whatever the outcomes that are good for the women, often they're good for the men too. Not that men don't sometimes disagree, but they also sometimes disagree with a woman who wants to go forward with parenting and we're fine with that. So that's an example. Another example is all the children who were born of women who had earlier abortions, where if abortion hadn't been safe and legal, that person could have lost their fertility and not been able to have that later child. The people who have friends and colleagues of a person who's had a safe legal abortion who could have lost that individual in their lives. And if she had died, would have had a significant hole in their lives of that family member or friend or person in their work life, professional life. So those are just a few examples of the people I think of as abortion beneficiaries who are stakeholders in this conversation, but either they don't step forward, they've not stepped forward completely, or they don't even know their abortion beneficiaries. Maybe they'd be willing to, but they don't know their mom had that abortion. They don't know that their colleague had that abortion, you know, and you could say it's none of their business. And it if she doesn't want to share it, that's fine. It's not. But they don't They don't even know. So they think the abortion issue doesn't touch them. And my point is that if one in four women are having an abortion by menopause in America, and again, this is the new lower number, women over 45, the estimate is one in three um, have had an abortion. Think of the concentric circle of people when we think of social networks. Yeah. you know, around each of those individuals. So anyone who's like, no, oh, abortion is real controversial, but it has nothing to do with me. I'm going to guess that it does. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So you talk about this idea of um, kind of a partial blindness, in a sense, when a woman is pregnant. So we can either see the woman or the fetus, but not often can we see them both at the same time. And I wanted to know what you mean by that. I mean, there are some practices uh, that, that we have around pregnancy, like a sonogram, for instance, that, mm-hmm. you know, makes us not see the woman and only the fetus. Yeah, I just was reflecting on it. Maybe others have a different experience and they're afraid at this and I am just stupid, but It's just hard to conceptualize, like really think about 
women and embryo and fetuses at the same time. And so I use the analogy of that optical illusion of my wife and mother-in-law, where you see the old woman and the young woman and the older woman. And like your brain knows they're both there. Yeah. And you could see either one very clearly. But if you try to step back and like really perceive both, it's just visually difficult and, and cognitively difficult, I think. And I just feel like the same is true when we think about abortion and the relationship between women and embryos or women and fetuses. I think it's true intellectually. And it's actually true physiologically that we visually can't see embryo or fetus in a sonogram without erasing the woman from the field of vision. And the funny thing is when I was pregnant, I asked a friend in the medical profession, I was like, is it possible to do a full body sonogram? Oh, Like what would it look like to do that like black and white fuzzy thing to my whole body? And like, could we make a huge picture, even if it was just snapshot by snapshot, to put this fetus in context of my entire body. Oh. And she was like, mm, no, I'm sorry, you can't do that. <laughs> like, that's not how it works. It wouldn't show up in the same way. Yeah, like, and I was like, ugh. Um, because I just thought like, oh, what, is, is, there, is there a bizarro world sonogram where I come in at midnight and we just do this crazy thing? But it, I, she said there isn't. Um, oh. I, I, I was like, let's just, wouldn't it just look so different if it was like, all right, Here's a five foot eight sonogram. I like, was waiting for the answer. I was hoping it would be yes. Like that would be really You're cool. like, please let there be such a sonogram. I want to see that picture so bad. Yeah, no. I wanted to like, and it's like I say, I talk about visiting that museum exhibit of the fetuses in jars and embryos in jars and just thinking like, gosh, what if, I mean, I'm glad they didn't die, but what if the women who miscarried had died in an accident at the same time and like their whole bodies were here? Like, how would you think differently about this exhibit yeah yeah so you know i'm curious about the abortion debate right because it seems like we keep rehashing Mm -hmm. the same arguments over and over again i'm curious as to whether you think that part of the problem with the abortion debate is that people are trying to come to some definitive moral conclusion and then trying to wedge it into a legal framework right is is that part Mm -hmm. of the problem i think that's a good assessment of the problem yeah (laughs) thanks yeah Good job, Jen. (laughs) Yeah, I think they're trying to agree on an ethical or moral assessment. I don't think they ever will have 100% consensus on that. And so one of the things I say in the book is I interpret our inability to reach consensus over 45 years of arguing about it as consensus on a different point, which is we're never going to agree about abortion. Yeah. And that's why it's constitutionally protected in this way. Neither quote side, and there's a whole spectrum. So that's why I put that in quotes, can prove the moral status of an embryo at the level that they can force that view by law on others. And so I think that the, if anything's been proven, it's the power of pluralism and the appropriateness of the pluralistic approach in this instance. Just like you can't prove your religion is better than mine, so we're going to have to try to persuade one another and hopefully coexist in our different religions. You know, that's, that's how we do it in the United States. And we have a history of morality legislation in the U.S. that's really diminished, right? So we have very few laws compared to what historically we've had that are justified strictly on moral grounds. And I think abortion, we need to understand it as a morality law, uh, a morality issue. And I think that's what Roe tried to do and attempted to do, but we haven't quite let go of that one the way we've let go of some others from the legal perspective. So you're right that we're, we're trying to force consensus on this moral issue, and then we're trying to shove it into a legal framework that is... I won't say it's meant to transcend the morality because there's no such thing. Yeah. But confronts it head on, sees the disagreement 
and says when people in theology and medicine and all these other fields can't reach agreement, the judiciary is not going to impose a view. Right. Or affirm the uh, legislature's imposition of a view. And that, that, that feels really right to me. So you talk about three types of abortion laws. There's a Trojan horse, Russian dolls, and real politic. Can you describe what these three laws are? Yeah, so the three, I have three categories loosely that I think of these um, abortion politics, really two categories, the Trojan horse and the Russian doll. And real politic is sort of another way to just think about it. So Trojan horse laws are the laws that purport to be for the benefit of women, but they're really for the benefit of embryos and fetuses as constructed by those who think that embryos and fetuses have interests and that interest always leads to being born. So they're the type of laws that suggest that the health regulation laws are an obvious example or even informed consent laws, quote unquote, I think of those as deformed consent laws, um, usually sonogram stuff, you know, the waiting periods purport to be like, so women can really be sure they're doing the right thing. But that's not really what they're for. That's to hope to make it harder to get an abortion. And for the idea that if they only thought about it, they would come to see it the way we see it instead of the way they see it. So it's a Trojan horse because it purports to be benefiting women, but it's for the benefit of embryos and fetuses as defined by the proponents. The Russian doll idea is just the idea that like, okay, so for some people, you know, the argument stops there. We are what I think of as honest abolitionists. We're just focused on embryonic and fetal life. The Russian doll image is more to highlight or give us a way to think about the fact that when you open the one doll that's supposedly patient benefit or safety and you get, oh, embryonic and fetal benefit. Okay. But then for others, you keep opening there's more dolls inside and it's like the next one typically is about women's role in society and the idea that like empowered women are super inconvenient right we take half of the jobs we take half of the spots in graduate school we don't need men for sex or for their money we only marry them when they are people partners you'd want to have right and people you might want to parent with this error requires more of men. And I get that. I see that. I think it's appropriate, but they've had all those spots for a long time. But that's a lot of social change in a fairly short amount of time. And I think it's still stinging. I think we're, you know, culturally not quite as adjusted to it as we think we are. And abortion has become the vehicle for a lot of that. It's symbolic of a lot of that. Another inside that Russian doll, when the sort of public sphere economic is the private sphere, the sexual freedom of that contraception and abortion gives women. And as I said, I guess I could put in the private sphere, the sort of romantic power in relationships that being pregnant or the fear of impregnation is not around defining relationships for many people. And then we get into like, there's another doll of religion and the role of religion in the United States. And there's some creepy racial stuff going on in terms of um, who who has babies and who doesn't. And like, we could keep going for some people. So that's, that's another framing that's useful to me when I think about it. And the reason that's relevant is I will speak for myself, and I also know others who feel this way, as people who agree with the constitutional law think that it's very important that abortion remain legal and a protected right, not just legal, but like a constitutional right, because it's central to self-determination. 
we're interested in being in honest dialogue with people who see embryonic life and fetal life differently. We're interested in understanding those neighbors better. We're interested in finding a court if we can, but like really understanding their point of view. We're not interested. I don't have a hot minute for someone who just thinks women should be chained to a stove. <laughs> and abortion is part of that program. Right. I, I'm, not, I'm not interested in that conversation. And so when you can't tell the honest abolitionist from the person who's actually operating more on this Russian doll approach, it's hard to get into a productive conversation with anyone because you feel like, oh, I don't want to get suckered into sincere, what seems like sincere dialogue with someone whose agenda is like, let's just go back to the 50s. I don't want to have, or if we're going to have that conversation, let's have it openly about all those other issues. But if it's about respect for the fetus, when we're really talking about, I wish there were less women at work. Right. I don't, that's not a productive conversation. Right. And then the last piece is, I say real politic. I mean, just thinking about some of the justice angles, almost 50%, 49% of women having abortions in the United States today fall below the poverty line. I'm just shocked by that statistic. Another 26% are in that space between 100 and 200% of the poverty line. So they're defined as low income. So together, that's 75% of abortion patients. I just never hear that discussed. And I think the fact that low-income and poor women have a much higher unintended pregnancy rate than women with higher incomes. So for women under the poverty line, it's 60% of all pregnancies are unintended. And for women over 200%, it's 30%. Yeah. And so like thinking about access to contraception, sexual empowerment, and that sort of thing, as well as access to abortion as justice issues... And economic justice issues is not a conversation that I'm hearing in the national abortion conversation. It's a conversation that's being had in many reproductive justice circles, but it's not one that I'm hearing on the news or the talk shows or the newspaper. That's sort of my next step in my thinking. I want to understand that better yeah. um, and and be able to think about that in a more concrete policy way. And it's a, it's a complex issue. It's a loaded issue. It's one with great historical baggage. I think poor women should have whatever number of children they want. Um, I don't want to be misunderstood. My point is simply that any pregnancy that is defined as unwanted, that a person then carries to term because they don't have access to the means to end that pregnancy, I think that's a problem. And it's a distributive justice problem because women in that higher income bracket deliver many fewer unintended pregnancies and actually have a higher abortion rate, which means they're controlling their fertility in a way that's allowing them to move forward economically and socially in a way that poor women don't have apparently the opportunity to, right? And it's more complicated than that. But I, as an ethicist who's asked to attend to justice, I would be remiss to not investigate that further and try to change that conversation in a productive way. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, it isn't written about very often. I know that Loretta Ross yes. has written about, um, you know, reproductive justice. Amazingly and productively. Right, yeah. Exactly. And then also um, someone I interviewed at the very beginning of the podcast, I think my very first episode, Laura Briggs uh-huh. wrote a book, How All Politics Became Reproductive Politics. Yeah. So she writes about that a bit too. But you're right. It, it's not a part of our you know national conversation and it needs to be. Mm-hmm. So I applaud you. Thank you.
Yeah, so again, we're at the 45-year mark of Roe v. Wade. So where do you think we should be at this juncture? And what direction would you like to see the debate, or this conversation rather, around abortion rights in the near future? The thing I reflected on after I finished the book was what the abortion debate has cost us as a nation. And it's so interesting to me on the 45th anniversary of Roe to think about And it's impossible to quantify all the hours of human energy, all the money, all the litigation, all the political fights and campaign contributions and speech making and legislative energy, everything that's been spent on both sides for 45 years. What if we could take all of that and direct it elsewhere? what good we could do if we could walk away from this. And what I mean by walk away is drop the regulations, get the government out of the abortion business, think of it as a issue of conscience, have robust private conversations with one another that where we tried to persuade one another, but take it out of the public realm in the way it's been. What if we took all that energy, all that money and all that time and applied it in the next 45 years to changing the circumstances for women who want to have children and can't and end their pregnancies because they can't afford it or they don't have other means of support for their family life, whether that's outstanding affordable daycare near their work site for professional women, whether it's family leave time for low-wage women. You know, fill in all those blanks of all the family-friendly and child-friendly and supportive of women policies that the reproductive justice model puts forward. If we could spend the next 45 years putting that kind of time and energy to the feminist agenda for women and families, I think we would just live in a much more amazing, rich country, well-adjusted country than we do today. And I would just, I, I regret the fight. I don't regret the fight because it was necessary and is necessary to gain and maintain women's freedom. And we're not done with that fight. I just regret that we have to have it. And I'd love to spend that energy elsewhere. And so from a culture change perspective, I think that's my ultimate goal and what all future projects are would move toward. That's a really beautiful way to end. You're absolutely right. Good. Like, let's find something positive. <laughs> well, Katie Watson, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed this conversation. I've learned so much from you and I learned so much from the book. And just thank you. Terrific. It was great to talk to you, Jen. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If this episode of The Electorate was helpful to you, please do me a favor. Please subscribe to The Electorate in iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And also please leave a review for The Electorate on iTunes. And again, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep up the good fight.